Welcome to Seven Heads, Ten Horns with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens. Okay, welcome back, everyone. It's now season two. It's very much like season one, but much better because we are older and wiser and have lived through part of a pandemic. So what could go wrong, right? The concept of the season is, well, let's start with last season, actually. So last season, we did some kind of mashup episodes that moved across time and space, especially early in the season. And then we began kind of a romp through the Bible plus some Apocrypha. So this time, we want to look at particularly early Christianity and make our way through more or less sequentially, looking at particular thinkers and also big news. We're going to be switching up our schedule a little bit, at least at the beginning of this season. We need to switch to releasing a new episode every two weeks because our teaching responsibilities both got more complicated this term. So if you're used to... Nope, just going to cut that out. Stop bang. So to make sure that you don't miss an episode, make sure to hit subscribe in your podcast source, like iTunes Podcasts or Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. Okay, so the the first uh, thinker we're going to be taking on is Justin Martyr. Uh, His... His, this epitaph martyr kind of gives away the game, I think, about what how things go for him. Um, but uh, just a little bit on his background. So there's a lot that's very sketchy. Most of our information about Justin comes from his own writings. So there's kind of a, a problem of, of sort of an outside verification with that. So we also have a line from the church historian uh, Eusebius. What we do know uh, is that he was born in the late first century or the early second century. And so he's writing in the second, in the second century. And he is a Greek speaking Roman citizen uh, from Palestine or near the modern city of Nablus. Um, So I've seen his ethnicity or his origins as, as listed as Samaritan. Um, It seems like he didn't practice the the Samaritan religion, uh, which is related to, uh, late ancient Judaism, uh, but he was probably something like a a Roman colonist in that area, um, and so that explains his education in um, in the gym, in the, the gymnasium, getting a philosophical education. Though it's not entirely clear like what school of philosophy he was associated with. Um, there are four or five major schools that are that are in play in this period of late ancient Mediterranean history, the Stoics, the Plotinists, um, Peripatetics, Pythagoreans, Epicureans. Uh, It's not, so we don't really know. But Justin sort of takes on this school of philosophy style of repping Christianity when he does convert. And he sort of thinks about Christianity as a philosophical rival to these schools. Um, So he, we know he spent some time teaching in Rome above the bathhouses, uh, which scholars think would maybe a, a sort of quiet, more relaxed atmosphere uh, where he could be operating and teaching and doing his research and writing. Um, and then the only thing we know is, as obviously in the name, Justin Martyr got martyred under the 
Roman prefect Rusticus. Uh, be- wah, wah. Yeah, he, he refused to sacrifice to the gods and admits to holding meetings with other Christians. Um, so like this was, this was uh, not going to go over too well. So one of the major sets of works that we get some information about what Justin thinks about the devil and demons and all those happy things is in his apologies. So Travis, what's, what are, what's going on in Justin's apologies? Like, what is he, what's he apologizing for? Like, did he, he break someone's heart or? Probably. I mean, he sounds like he was pretty great. He brags about his fancy education. I mean, you know that there was, you know, there were some strewn hearts along that. It's Valentine's Day, so we got we got to we got to take it there. Ooh, right. Shout out. Shout out. Um. So yeah, it's addressed to they're they are addressed to important people in the political world. So the first apology, for example, is addressed to the emperor. But scholars think this was likely not actually the case. So why is it set up as a fancy address to an emperor? What's really going on here? I'm glad you asked. It's a defense of Christianity against charges of atheism? A little strange here. But if you know your Plato, then this should sound familiar. So... As you might recall, in the Apology of Socrates, speaking of apologies, the charge that's brought against this famous Greek philosopher is that of atheism, that he is ignoring the pantheon of Greek gods and instead pointing to something else and doing away with tradition. He's corrupting the youth, corrupting impo- Corrupting the youth, yeah. that's right. Oh my God. <laughs> The worst ever. Who would do that? So Socrates is on trial for doing philosophy, essentially. But the charge is atheism and corrupting the youth. In so what's why is this the way that Justin sets up his defense of Christianity? Well, first of all, Christianity is this controversial new religion within Greek-speaking Roman culture. And so it needs a kind of defense. It needs an explanation in certain contexts. One is in the political context in which Christians are getting put to death, right? We know how the story ends for Justin Martyr. So in a sense, you can think of this as a dress rehearsal for that. But here, because there are specific references to Socrates elsewhere in the Apologies, one way of thinking about this is as Justin Martyr in drag as Socrates, who is on trial for doing philosophy. And that's what this atheism thing is all about. It's a reference, really. I don't think there's any much to it that makes sense. Otherwise, he's explicitly talking about a defense of Christianity, a religion with a God, right? I think part of the atheism thing, too, is that uh, if uh, Jesus is God and dies, there's like a sort of crass reading. It's like, oh, your God, your, your God died, bro. You know, like that kind of thing. And it kind of goes together with the, uh, oh, Christians get together and have orgies, Thing and practice cannibalism. Um, so I think, I think there was like the sort of the nasty, uh, uh, the sort of rumors about Christianity that atheism sort of fits with and is kind of a convenient tie-in. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense, actually. In reality, in the trials of Christians, you actually didn't need much to be able to put someone to death. If someone claimed to be a Christian, plus they refused to sacrifice to the emperor, then that was enough to justify their getting killed. So this kind of elaborate defense of Christianity does not come from any practical, 
you know, real life situation, but it's a bit of a setup and it's meant to put the case out there on somewhat philosophical terms, you know, in the tradition of Greek philosophy, make a case for why Christianity is truly an amazing religion. Mm, Indeed. So there's like some doubt that this was ever going to reach the Roman emperor. This guy's renting out a room above a bathhouse. I mean, like he doesn't really have that much clout. Um, And so we might think of this as kind of a rhetorical framing device as addressing the emperor at the emperor is sort of the embodiment of Greco Roman values, culture, et cetera. And so speaking to the emperor is a way of sort of speaking to that entire culture. Um, And so in apologizing for making this apology for Christianity, Justin's entering into a dialogue with that culture. And it's not just like a friendly, you know, nice to Nietzsche kind of dialogue. It's, it's, it's really polemical. Uh, he's got a lot of points to bring against Greek religion and culture and in particular sexual mores and norms. Yeah. He needs kind of an angle in, And those sexual mores you mentioned are his way in. Jennifer Knust, for example, a scholar who writes about this, talks about the manliness of being a Roman citizen, of Roman culture, in Justin's apologies. And this form of manliness that Justin talks about has to do with self-control over sexual desire. Now, in our own culture, that's not usually how manliness is (laughs) defined. But remember, we're in a radically different time and place here. So that self-control is considered super Roman and super mask, right? So this is at once a nod to something that was already present within Roman, Greco-Roman culture. And this idea of self-restraint. And it's a nod to the recent Augustan marriage reforms. So what were these? These were legislation, moralizing legislation, designed to rein in what were considered out-of-control sexual mores of the time. And so there were penalties for things like adultery, for example. This was a little weird coming from the emperor's family, which was quite famously not particularly moral, but, you know, In politics, you need to tidy up those images. This is a great way to do it, right? But this idea of self-control was not just one that was part of Greco-Roman culture. Think, for example, in the Hebrew Bible of the idea of porneia. I'm using the Greek term here from the Septuagint translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek, of course. But this idea of sexual immorality, or porneia, as idolatry. There was a comparison that's made in several different places in the Hebrew Bible between these two, what seem like very separate ideas. So in other words, you're cheating on God in a kind of romantic or sexual sense every time you worship a different God. If you go away, if you stray from the one true God, then that is considered in many places in the Hebrew Bible, it's compared to sexual immorality, cheating on on a spouse. And Justin picks up on this, too, and pieces this together through a pretty weird demonology. Yeah, so Justin really sort of elevates the stakes. We have, like, this comparison of idolatry to uh, porneia or to sort of sexual lewdness and and immorality in the Hebrew Bible, as you mentioned. Uh, 
but the, the thing that Justin does with that is to say it's not even that's like that's bad, but really it's worse. Uh, you guys aren't just you know stepping out when you worship other gods. You're actually worshiping demons. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, like it's like that. That's this sort of went up a step there. Um, and this may sound like the sort of conspiracy fantasies of recently elected Marjorie Taylor Greene, for example, um, but it really is central to Justin's philosophical Christian project of cultural critique, culture war uh, in the Roman Empire. So how does he piece yeah. this all together, Travis? Well, and it also sets up this enormous precedent, right? he isn't the last Christian to say, oh, your gods are actually just demons. This extends on. Yeah, we'll be with that for a while with that, that idea. Yeah. We'll be with this idea for a while. It'll come back. It just, just stay tuned folks. We'll, we'll be returning to this idea. So yeah, let's, let's get down to the first apology. There's some really choice passages here. So here's just a little bit of one of them from the first apology. This is from chapter five and it has to do with our topic here of these evil demons and exactly what's going on. So he writes, since of old, these evil demons manifested themselves, both defiled women and corrupted boys. (laughs) I know they were bad, right? Again, gender discourse here, sexualized discourse and showed terrifying sights to people. And those who did not use their reason and judging the acts that were done were filled with terror and being taken captive by fear and not knowing that these were demons, they called them gods. Okay, so there's that move. You've got all together in one, that sexualizing discourse, this lack of using their reason, again, because leaning into that philosophical training here, they're creating a logical error here and moving out of fear, again, caving to their emotions. That's why they make this mistake. They don't recognize that who they think are gods are actually just demons. And this is his ideology, if you will, his story of the source of demons as Greek gods. It's good that the speech wasn't actually given to the emperor who worshipped them. Can't think that would have gone over super well. But with a name like Justin Martyr, we know how this story is going to end, right? So what about Plato here? This idea of demons. So Klaus can you explain for us a little bit what he might mean when he talks about demons? Because there's a whole philosophical kind of category of these daimonists. Right, yeah. It, uh, so like it's sort of in a, in a neutral sense, it, it just means a, these intermediary beings in, the, in, in sort of older Greek contexts that were between uh, gods and human beings, like sort of maybe like spirits, uh, elemental spirits. We talked about with Paul a few weeks, whenever that was. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's interesting. So Justin is, is miming, um, cosplaying Socrates and saying Socrates stood up against the demons because in being philosophically impious, Socrates was thumbing his nose at the demons who were running ancient Athens or whatever. Um, and so it's weird that Justin wants to claim Socrates for being uh, a demon hunter when Socrates famously had his own demon um, and, and sort of had this, this inspiration, this sort of source of insight that he credited to this other kind of being. And he didn't mean that he was like possessed, like in the freaking exorcist. Like he just, he's like, I, I just have this kind of contact with this other spirit who gives me some good ideas sometimes. Um, not like I'm spewing 
split pea soup out of my mouth with Maxon Zuda at my, you know, like getting in my face. Like it's not, it wasn't like that. Um, so yeah, there's a, there's a, 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 a sort of a much more neutral range to this term that would have had um, credence in in Justin's context, and we don't have this very Christianized sense of demon, I think, all the time. And maybe Justin's doing his best to change that. I think you're right. I think we're at a moment where Justin's trying to transition us into a bit of a more specific reference to who these daimonists are. And we see that, I think, in the second apology in particular, where we've got an angelic fall going on. Right, Klaus? Yeah, and uh, so we're in the second apology and, you know, maybe the, the <clears throat> excuse me, the, 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 the second time around with apologizing for Christianity, uh, things get a little bit, pop a little bit more. Um, <laughs> we, so we get the story that not only are, um, not only are the, the demons preying on young boys and women, again, playing into this sort of masculinity thing where it's like, oh, like if you're a young boy, you're not completely a man, so you're not in self-control. And if you're a woman, you're not in self-control. You don't have self-control. Um, it's really playing up on that. But then we get we get a much more complex story in the second apology that maybe will uh, sound familiar. But in this account, the angels, sort of not just demons, the angels violated their charge of looking after human beings and all the things that were created on earth and, quote, fell into sin with women and begot children who are called demons. Uh, and these, these demons instructed human beings in the use of sacrifices, incense, libations. It's like sort of like a wild 1960s uh, countercultural party or something with all the incense. But, um, and like sort of led them to become slaves of their lustful passions. When Justin's um, sort of origin story of human suffering and evil. It's angels gone bad. That sounds super familiar, Klaus. Yeah. Is it, does it remind you of the watchers from the book of Enoch? Everyone's favorite pseudo epigraphon. That's exactly what it reminds mm. me of. Well done. So we got these good angels gone bad who get it on with human women and beget giants in that story here. You know, we've got, we have the angels who fall into sin with women and begot children who are demons. Sounds awfully familiar. I think it's clear that he's directly borrowing from the Enoch tradition, but there's also that part in Enoch that seems to reference idolatry. And there's that part where it goes, here shall stand the angels who have connected themselves with women and their spirits, assuming many different forms are defiling mankind and shall lead them astray into, wait for it, sacrificing to demons as gods. Whoa. Okay. So we've got demon worship here in Enoch. And I somehow missed that the first time around. So what do you make of that, Klaus? Are we dealing with a translation issue where this concept might have been inserted into the text unknowingly? Or is it reasonable to think that worshiping demons as gods was actually the issue here? Yeah, I think uh, it's helpful to remember that Enoch is, the, the version we have is from Ethiopic. Uh, and what I think was probably, if my understanding is correct, was a translation of uh, older Greek version. Uh, this gets pretty hazy, I guess. Um, but again, yeah, like demon can have sort of a more neutral sense as being an intermediary. Um, 
this and you know and in a way like not so dissimilar from from angels like this sort of like these beings who are go-betweens um and so I think we stripped down all those associations that we have with the exorcist and everything. Uh, we get the sense of like a powerful being that's caught between heaven and earth. Um, but I do think that the promiscuity and the sort of sexual taboo crossing in Enoch is something that sort of makes it line up a little bit. Um, because as you were saying, like with Pornea, like idolatry is is really associated with promiscuity. And so there's like another layer reinforcing this link between idols and illicit sex and, and, and the sex between angels and women. So what about, so we, we're sorry, we got demons maybe a little bit, you know, in squarely in sites here. Like it's not just a translation issue, like that there's something going on with that term, but we haven't really talked about Satan or the devil. Uh, does the, does the devil show up in, Justin's ideas about human, like the human fall or, or uh, demonic enslavement in the Roman empire. Yeah. Satan definitely shows up. And one of the great takeaways of Justin's contribution to the history of the devil in particular has to do with uh, the identification of the state of Satan with the serpent. And it looks, you know, does he, say all the right words? Is it a perfect coming together of these two ideas? No. But in several different places, mainly in the dialogue with Trifo, which we're going to be talking about a bit later when we talk about Judaism, there are some moments where he kind of lines it all up and puts the devil and the serpent next to each other and says, look, here are examples, not just of bad things that have happened or evil that's operated in these different instances, but I think we start to get a picture of the devil as having been a key factor in human sin from Eden. So what's your take, Klaus? Do you think that we've got our kind of first important sanction of the idea that the serpent in Eden who tempts Eve and then Adam eventually is the same as Satan. Are we there yet? I think it was not a huge step to get there because Revelation, when Revelation talks about the dragon and the dragon, the, the, the war in heaven, uh, there is that sort of sense of this is the serpent, this is the snake. Um, and Revelation doesn't spell that out, but you can see where, by, uh, you know, by a hundred years later or so, 200 years later, uh, theologians are just starting to make that connection uh, intuitively. Um, so yeah, I, I, I don't really know what other uh, snake would be, you know, fall into the category that, that sort of uh, Justin's getting at here. Um, so I, I do think that, yeah, this is probably one of the, the major um, connecting points between the, the serpent in Genesis who tempts Adam and Eve and the idea that this serpent is the, the big dragon. Good. So I want to get into this rather fascinating topic that Jennifer Knust talks about, which is the enslavement of the entire human race to demons, or at least of the Greco-Roman religion following portion of the world this idea of being ensla- of their being enslaved to demons. 
Fun fact, my friend Ryan Alvarez played a demon slave on that Buffy spinoff, Angel, in the early 2000s. So basically, I know a celebrity now and just needed to drop that in. But speaking of angels, Justin says that the bad angels who desired human women transgressed the divine order of the cosmos and had sex with the women producing... The Nephilim, the, the giants, like it says in the Bible. Well, if this were Enoch or if this were even Genesis 6, you would be correct. But do you want to take another guess? Uh, demons? He just like skips the whole step where the giants are killed and their evil ghosts get called demons and all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So these, this again, this term that's a little bit ambiguous for us, right? Daimonas or demons. Definitely not what you ought to be worshiping. We're clear on that. We've talked about that link to idolatry. And as he says elsewhere, Satan is the chief of the demons. So now we've got that connection we were building between the demons as a group and Satan as their head. So he does have that relationship laid out in there in the first apology. Also, he groups the bad angels and their spawn, the demons, as a group, the bad angels and the demons begotten by them. They're all kind of like one category, more or less, for Justin. So while other early Christian authors will see the fallen angels themselves as the demons. For Justin, the demons are technically the angel spawn, but they're in cahoots with the bad angels in all their nefarious activities, including, and here we get to it, the enslavement of the human race to themselves. That's the part you were asking about. By means of, and I kind of love this, magic writings? What were they writing, Klaus? <laughs> uh, anyway, fear and punishments, and by instructing them in the use of sacrifices, incense, and libations. So this is their kind of methodology for ensnaring and eventually enslaving humanity. And apparently these latter things were super helpful since they were now enslaved not only to the bad angels and demons, but also to lustful passions. Again, getting back to that gendering and sexualizing of the discourse here. The basic claim then is that Christians are chill mask bros, if you will. And this even included women sometimes. For example, see the early Christian literature on becoming male, and stay tuned for more on that when we talk about Perpetua and Felicity at some point. But the Romans, by contrast to these early Christians, are burning with passions, which is both bad and also super femme. So just to sum this up for a second, so being a slave is bad, and that makes one similar to being feminine or effeminate. And it's really the result of worshiping Greco-Roman gods who are demons in disguise. In a nutshell. So a lot of this has to do with the shame of the cross. This idea, which is mentioned actually in Hebrews 12, that looks to Jesus as the kind of pioneer and perfecter of the faith, who, for the sake of the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, it says, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Okay, so that's all from Hebrews 12. And this shame of the cross that's mentioned there gets related, and I think this is fair, to the shame of the early martyrs and the rhetorical reversal that Christian rhetoric is meant to perform. So like state executions either by crucifixion or lions, tigers, and bears in the arena aren't shameful and effeminate after all. They're, they're trying to be humiliating, but in fact, they are mask and victorious and also chill. Um, that's, that was actually important. You had to be, you had to be totally 
equanimous about uh, martyrdom. You, uh, you had that was that was a sign of your sort of supernatural, uh, the supernatural, the d- the divine intervening and and getting you into the right headspace to be torn apart by wild animals. Um, so uh, yeah, dealing with shame is really important. And um, one of the things that I think is really interesting about this is that. Uh, that idea of masculine self-control and avoiding shame like is itself a, for lack of a better term, like a pagan Greco-Roman value that Justin's sort of weaponizing against them here. Um, Absolutely. It's, again, rhetorical reversals, you know. It's a master move that we're going to see a lot in Christianity, which is to take on values of the society of wherever it is that they're trying to, you know, create Christians and weave it into... Christian theology as closely as they can to kind of prepare the way for, you know, spreading the gospel. Yeah. So like this all, I guess, even though this is addressed towards the emperor, but it should be bad news for the emperor and the fictive audience of this whole thing. Like this is an indictment of their entire culture and religion and political system and how they have sex and everything. (laughs) It is like, even as it uses a bit of that culture against itself. Ultimately, it's this massive refusal of some of the most central parts of it, emperor worship, the worship of the pantheon, etc. So for Justin's sake, thank goodness this whole thing is a fiction, right? Still, Romans get a convenient excuse for their misbehavior, for their being duped in the form of the demons themselves. They've just been fooled essentially, by all the misinformation. Yeah, it's like, wake up, sheeple. You know, it's like really Marjorie Taylor Greene action going on here. (laughs) Totally. So this all fits in, as I mentioned before, with the Augustine marriage reforms. And in this context, Justin is trying to show that Christians have something in common with Roman sexual mores. We're totally against adultery, too. But, like, we go even a step beyond that. The best Christians are celibate. Just ask Paul. And the reason we can do this is because of Jesus, who makes us chill mask bros. God gives Christians special moral resolve to endure the challenges of chastity. So that's our battlefield now. It's not just getting, you know, killed in the arena. We also need to be resolved to endure the challenges of chastity as well, even though everyone is saying that Christians are these weird sex freaks. That's what the rumor is about Christians at this time. But... Christians are telling the truth about how chaste they are, and you know this because their super morality is on full display with all the martyrs. The martyrs serve then as this kind of proof for the more hidden sexual mores of Christians. So these rumors that you're spreading about Christians having these wild sex parties are not true, and you can tell because just look at how they behave in the arena. They have this resolve. They have this equanimity about them. And so, obviously, everything you must, you've heard on the street about their wild sex parties is not true. And in that way, they are then even more Roman than the Romans. They're out Romaning the Romans. Yeah, I bet that was really persuasive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it went over really he's well. Ro- he's he's yeah. got a point. Like, he is more Roman than I am. Even. Like, <laughs> <laughs> And at that point, the emperor converts, and that's the end of the story. Oh, wait, no, that's not at all what happens. Okay. Well, 
you're right. I think rhetorically this probably failed if we were considering it on its own terms. But it is important that he calls these non-Christian gods demons. I also think if we consider that his real audience probably wasn't the emperor, probably wasn't pagans, but was instead Christians themselves, it might have fell on some sympathetic ears. Speaking of sympathy or the lack thereof, uh, let's let's think a little bit about how Justin is working on Judaism and uh, the sort of Jewish Christian ambiguous boundaries between his communities. Right. Um, so the other one of the other major works is the dialogue with Trifo. Trifo. Don't don't trifle with me, Trifo. I don't know what, what we want to say about that. I mean, are um, we supposed to say like Trufo? Trufo. I don't know yeah, Greek. I'm just gonna be Greek's, honest. But that, Greek's weird like that. I don't know. Um, I don't whatever know. we say is 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 right. Um, right. Please 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 tweet us yeah. and let us know how to pronounce this. Yeah. all of you Greek scholars. Definitely, thank you. Definitely. Um, but yeah, so um, it might be interesting to sort of uh, follow the lead of the scholar Annette Yoshiko Reed and contextualize the demonization of Greco-Roman gods by comparing Justin's approach with uh, how he thinks about the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, um, and Judaism and Jews as such. Um, So like we've already, you know, established that all pagan religion is a result of demonic seduction and enslavement, um, feminization, uh, and it's morally deplorable in that it involves a loss of agency. Um, and so even though pagan culture, Greco-Roman culture is um, demonized, sexualized, um, enslaving, because of the traces of the, the logos, the idea of that human reasoning power all comes from Jesus or from, from Christ or the word, according to Justin, the people who fought against this system who were critical and rational um, were only doing so because their rationality was on loan in a sort of uh, light echo uh, from, from Jesus. Um, So that's, you know, in copying Socrates, uh, Justin's also saying that Socrates was copying Jesus to, (laughs) to sort of boil it down. Um, So, so this is like, that's the weird dynamic about his critique of paganism. Um, it, seem, this, it seems like the whole big picture of adopting Enoch um, was as a way of attacking the Greco-Roman system. When it gets to the question of how to think about Judaism and Jews in relationship to Christianity, um, there's a different kind of moral guilt that's being pointed to. It's not quite the, oh, you let yourself be enslaved by these horny demons it's a little bit different. He uses the the story of Adam and Eve's disobedience in Genesis as like this paradigm for condemning Jewish stubbornness. Uh, and so through the continual refusal of acknowledging Jesus as divine, um, they're actually allying themselves with demonic forces and sort of recapitulating this primordial disobedience. Um, and that doing so 
means that whereas the Greco-Romans, the Roman Empire, is sort of at the mercy and that victims of the demonic, um, Justin's pushing for this view that the Jews themselves are more actively, stubbornly aiding the demons. Yeah, it's like they should know better in a way that the pagans through the misinformation campaign. It kind of doesn't make any sense because it's like, well, but you have the philosophers. So like, you know, the philosophy. <laughs> no, it doesn't, it doesn't hang together. And we'll get to that. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about how, how can you borrow Greek philosophy and say, oh, this part's totally cool. And then reject the other. There's a little bit of a, you know, selective interpretation of Greek culture. If you look at it as a whole and as, as including that philosophy. Okay. Okay. But to summarize then, it looks like so far, Justin has these two pretty different origin stories of evils entry into the world. There's the one for pagans that we've talked about that's all from Enoch. It's this angelic fall that's an elaboration of Genesis chapter 6. And that's sort of the pagan story. It's like, oh, you got duped by the demons and, you know, their feminizing ways. And then you have the much more blameworthy example that's applied to the Jews where you have the paradigm of Adam and Eve that leads to continued disobedience as he walks through the prophets and how the prophets were ignored and you just kept doing it wrong. And he has this really much heavier critique there. So we have these two origin stories of evil, one that is interpreted and applied and discussed with regard to pagans. And then another that seems much worse that really indicts the Jews. What about the way evil works for Christians? I mean, apparently it's not an issue. Just kidding. So remember that Christianity is really young at this point. So he only really concedes that Christians who came from pagan stock, right, were by and large once followers of this other religion who were, you know, ensnared by those demons that he talked about. But, you know, now it's all good. Once they convert, he really has no critique for them. He's not interested in addressing any of the potential evil that Christians might be doing because the problem, according to him, in what we have remaining of his writings are the ways that these other groups haven't gotten it yet, haven't accepted the gospel. Right, right. Um... So Justin follows the Enoch narrative pretty closely and argues that sinfulness doesn't come from human disobedience, but from angels and their sexual sins with, with women. So in sense, this sense that like, right, it's not quite your fault. Like what does that have to do with paganism? So Reed, the scholar that we're following here argues that it's all about audience. She says, the apologies are purportedly written to prominent Romans, as we've discussed, and the argument is designed with that audience in mind. So that's the connection there between paganism on the one hand and this particular angelic fall narrative with sin. Right. So that explains like the sort of the doting references to Socrates throughout. Exactly. The way he treats the Greek mythological, philosophical patrimony is like how evangelicals accuse progressive Christians of treating the Bible cafeteria style. Take what you like, leave the rest. I'll have some platonic philosophy, but pass on the whole pantheon of Randy gods and their philandering and their progeny. 
So Klaus, I have to say I love the Enoch story because it puts the blame for evil squarely on the shoulders of angels. And while I'm all for solidarity with angels in general, in this case, I'm willing to throw them under the bus. Yeah, it's it's great. I mean, it, it makes them all their fault. Uh, but unfortunately, it wasn't just... You know, it's not just Justin who has two paradigms that like makes some humans responsible and in one case makes the angels responsible. Different traditions that are, were part of the reception of Enoch, uh, for example, like the Book of Jubilees, um, retells the Genesis narrative with Adam and Eve's disobedience and positions the Watchers as this kind of like supplement to the fall. Um, other stories put like the, the murder of Abel by Cain uh, as the sort of major moment. Um, but even Jubilees that Jubilees has like, as we, as I, you know, we, we've done an episode on this, like there is a lot of really interesting angels gone wild, uh, theology there about the, you know, the sort of origins of culture and evil culture and things that sort of also play into Justin's argument. Um, but there is the sense that it isn't quite all the angels fault. Like the angels, represent this occasion for a serious problem and, and a, uh, a chance to violate a boundary that both angels and humans engage in. Um, and so uh, human beings are the ones responsible for evil in other receptions of the, the, the Watcher's myth. Um, angels come and teach them about stuff, you know, but the whole like giants to ghosts to evil spirits process functions as a way of punishing sinful human beings, right? So it's like the the whole like uh, horror show of the angels falling and the demon ghosts and everything. It's about punishment more than just actually causing all the problems. Well, sad for me. I was really hoping I could just blame all of my shortcomings on the behavior of Randy Angels, but. I still, I still event, do. I mean, I'm not sold on it. Oh, good. <laughs> okay, excellent. Well, then maybe I'll keep going with that. Um, so we've talked a little bit about how Justin thinks of evil with regard to pagans in the first and second apologies. Let's zoom in now on his treatment of Jews in the dialogue with Trifo Trifo. Don't trifle with me. <laughs> first of all, what is that text? Tell us a little bit about it, Klaus. Yeah, sure. Um, so in some of these stray references to Justin Martyr and uh, Eusebius, uh, there's this idea that this dialogue took place live in Ephesus, um, but there's other scholars who suggest maybe it took place someplace else in, in the sort of Mediterranean world. Um, it's the, the really important car context is that it's happening right after the, uh, the Bar Kokhba revolt and war, this sort of series of Jewish wars against Roman domination. Um, and so like uh, the gospel of Mark is written with the destruction of the second temple and the sack of Jerusalem. Um, and the Bar Kokhba revolt is in response to, I think some of the, the theories are, it's a response to a new city being built on the ruins of Jerusalem and a temple of a temple to Jupiter being, you know, built over the ruins of the second temple, um, and so like you know, looks like this serious reaction on the part of um, the, the the Jews who were left in Judea against this. Um, but yeah, so it's like this, you know, by the end of it, the Emperor Hadrian has completely destroyed Jerusalem and the revolting militant Jews again. Um, and it's really this sort of genocidal moment that really pushes the diaspora. 
so anyway, that's like a big part of the, the, the context of the dialogue. Um, Excellent. What would you say about the intended audience here? Do you think that he has in mind that he's going to show that his debate with this important Jewish guy proves that Christianity is way better than Judaism and then win over all these Jewish converts? Yeah, I mean, again, it seems like the idea that this was going to win over Jewish, like that this was like, okay, just show this to your Jewish friends and this will solve all, this will like you know, dissolve all their problems <laughs> with Christianity. Like, you know, I don't think anyone was that naive. Uh, so it's like more, you know, it's always, it's scripts like these that are scripts that are like sort of internal scripts that are for, for, you know, um, people, for, for, for Christians who, you know, needed to be convinced that they were, the new Israel or the true Israel that had replaced or superseded uh, Judaism, the Jews. Um, and that's, you know, when you have this city destroyed numerous times and laid waste by the Romans and you'd be like, Oh, look, Isaiah says, and these other prophets say that the city is going to be destroyed. Um, warning you that you need to accept some sort of change to your religion or it's going to be destroyed. Well, that was us. And like, we're taking over. Um, but Got it. yeah. Uh, so yeah, you know, really uh you're sort of you know a strong early variety of uh good old-fashioned christian supersessionism with regard to judaism um but anyway so i think uh it seems like justin probably wrote this above the bathhouse in that chill office uh years after the actual debate took place if it, if it ever did take place um uh and so uh it's 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 divided up into like sort of some major talking points, I think, in Christian apologetics with respect to Judaism. We get like this arguments about like, why don't Christians observe the Mosaic law? Like why, like, you know, why we read these books, but that stuff doesn't apply to us, like discuss. Um, you know, sort of your normal, why Jesus is the real Messiah stuff. Um, and then, oh, well, if, if Jesus is God, then like we get all of the promises that God promised to the Jews and and then, you know, the Hebrews and, in the uh, exilic narratives and stuff. Um, and then uh, they have some pleasantries and Justin is really hopeful that one day Trifo will be able to enter the, the Christian fold. Um, well, he doesn't even end it. Like he's writing this years later. He could totally just lie and be like, and then I baptized Trifo with my own hands, but that doesn't happen. Apparently, He wanted to like keep that tension. Like, you know, like it's, Oh, like, Till the next episode, you know. Like, yeah, uh, stay tuned for a volume two of this debate. Well, we never get a volume two. At least it doesn't survive. So <laughs> Justin got his head cut off. So you know he couldn't get around to writing it. <laughs> he didn't. Get, he have time. He didn't have time. Sorry, sorry, folks. So when it comes to evil, then in this dialogue, it seems pretty clear that the way he talks about it with Trifo is as a human choice. And this comes up in the way he characterizes the Jews as a people who repeatedly disobeyed the commandments as well as their supposed adoption of pagan idolatry. He keeps saying that this is like a huge contemporary problem in Judaism, that Jews are worshiping things other than the one true God. That's his accusation anyway. Right. Uh, and like, it's a little confusing because like you would think like the, the sort of the story and the, the, the narrative that prophets and the the the, the, the sort of deuteronomistic authors and historians write is that what distinguishes 
the the Jewish people is that they worship the one true God and that these practices separate them from, like the law separates them from pagans. And, you know, this, you know, like it's strange then that this is something that Justin's kind of hanging over their heads. Yeah, it does seem really weird and unnecessary. I think he could have focused on the kind of shared texts that they have and why don't you get Jesus? In other words, that first section of the debate seems like it would have then been sufficient. But in any event, what he does is leans on this key difference. Jews choose idolatry, again, in Justin's eyes, despite their ancient and continued relationship to God, while pagans are merely duped into idolatry by demonic influence. And he keeps pointing to the precedent for this in Adam and Eve. Yeah, and I, I need to like chime in on this part. It's so strange because it's like Adam and Eve is... They're the they're the parents of all humanity, and Justin and like sort of doing a little bit of advanced research for the Gnosticism episode that we'll do sometime. Like Justin is like really aware that certain groups that are sort of inside Christianity or adjacent to Christianity that sometimes get called Gnostics are really down and critical of the Creator God, and are like, oh, like creation and the Creator God are bad. We kind of saw this with the Manichaeans before. Um, and Justin's like, no, the creation's good. The creator God's good. So anyway, we have like Adam and Eve who are the, you know, the human creation who are supposed to be the parents of all humanity. And yet they stand in for how stubborn the Jews are. Like, and that's supposed to make the Jew. That's like, that's like this otherizing sort of like subhumanizing gesture against the Jew. It's like so contorted. Uh, well, and you have to wonder if part of this isn't that we're drawing from occasional pieces, we're not getting Justin's systematic theology here. Justin's writing with a particular audience in mind. He uses this example of Adam and Eve when talking about human responsibility uh, for evil with his Jewish audience. Now, the question for me is why he can't talk to his pagan audience with that same example. I think that's why we get scholars who are saying, okay, this angelic ideology, this rather, this angelic ideology is only being used in this debate with pagans or this explanation for why Christianity is worthy to a pagan audience. I wonder if Justin had written something that were more systematic, if we would have seen him making more universalizing moves about evil, but we just can't know, of course. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's true. But like, even if you want, like, okay, like we want to say like, oh, he, this is all about uh, the occasion for writing. It's like, it's still so, I mean, it's still so fraught to me. Like the, the idea that like, oh, like we're going to use the Adam and Eve story to emphasize human responsibility and like, the Jewish people in the prophetic literature choose to become idolatrous. It's like, but like they choose that. But like if demons behave the way you say they behave, like why is it a free choice for them and not for the, for the Rome? I I don't know. It's, it's, I mean, I guess you could say like, Oh, it's because you knew about God, but even it almost seems like he doesn't want to even want to grant them that. Um, So I don't know. Yeah, and it seems like he also ignores the fact that God keeps choosing the Jewish people. Yeah. yeah. Right? You have to very selectively read the Hebrew Bible to not notice how very special God's people yeah, are it, to God. For me, it's like right? Justin, it's like it's like a hermeneutics of cruelty uh, across the whole thing. It's, just, it's like so cynical. <laughs> 
um, yeah. and, and so, yeah, and just like so exploitative um, of this of, of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, it's my, my sense. Um, Absolutely. And then on the other side, when you think about his apologies, they seem so self-serving and trying to get Christians out of this position of being a persecuted minority. And so, you know, I can try and have some sympathy there. He does end up dying for this after all in the end, I suppose. I should be nicer. But wow, it's really hard to forgive him for this just vitriolic rhetoric against Jews. Right, and I think it was uh, in one of the pieces we read where it seems like it's really important for Justin that Christians be like a separate almost race or genos, a separate nation from pagans and Jews. That it's that it's not just about beliefs. It's about a kind of different form of humanity. Um, and, you know, I don't want to be too anachronistic and, and presentist, you know, when reading that, but things like that for me, I, you know, as, as someone who, you know, reads in different parts of the Christian tradition, like really stand out when you get that, like, oh, this is like a different kind of human being as a result of this, these commitments or this, this, this event. Um, and it, it, it's sort of, it's a way of making sense of why he, this, this sort of hermeneutics of cruelty and, and self-service uh, really are present across his, his text, but it's, it's, it's a bit disturbing. No, I would say it's a lot disturbing. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I would just um, clarify that a genos or a, a group of people in the sense that the entry point is conversion by and large in his time period, right? You Very few people are born Christians. That's starting to happen. But most people are converts because we're still so early. So just... Yeah, it's still gross. Like I'm not, I'm not trying to defend him, but just to make sure that our heads are in the right sort of era of Christianity. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, like, let's you know, we we you know we really love Satan talk around here, and so let's 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 get into how Satan works for for Justin. Um, y- yeah, so for for Justin, Satan's fall is separate and precedes the fall of the angels, like in the Enoch story, Satan fell from the beginning, even though he sometimes speaks of these events together as examples of disobedience. So he's not always totally precise, but you do generally get the sense that um, the evil mastermind uh, preceded the angelic underlings. Justin also identifies Satan with the serpent, and we sort of, we talked about this already, but like the Edenic serpent in the dialogue. So we have, we have like big dragon, little serpent. They're the same guy. Um, <laughs> and that's like a hugely important precedent for the history of the devil. And it isn't the devil who is to blame for sin though, in Justin's understanding. We have like, this guy's a, a snake, he's a demon, he's a dragon, but like, it's not his fault. He's just, he's a distraction. It's, it's, it's humans who are to blame. Absolutely. Yeah. It's those people who have been led astray maybe by Satan in Justin's mind. And Justin really wants to drive home that when he's addressing a purportedly Jewish audience here in the dialogue with Trifo, that, you know, it's human responsibility. That's where the blame lies. So the story of Adam and Eve is just all over that work. Um, throughout the dialogue. And to be clear, we're not talking about inherited original sin, that doctrine is definitely not 
in the picture just quite yet in the history of Christianity. It's more like when you think of how Adam and Eve are related to human sin more generally, it's it's kind of like the eternal wellspring of human disobedience, first glimpsed in Adam and Eve, then gets repeated ad infinitum by, well, you would think human beings from then on, but as we've discussed, the way he tells it, it's by the Jews. Anti-Semitic much? Uh, yes, it would, it would seem so to me. Uh, <laughs> um, one thing I noticed looking at some of the references and sources for uh, the scholarship on the dialogue with Trifo is that sometimes it seems like it is the devil who actually is responsible. It's, 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 it's he, you know, I, I get the point in this article for aligning human responsibility with Adam and Eve and then responsibility, that responsibility with Jews. Um, but he can sort of speak out of both sides of his mouth. Sometimes I was really struck by this one line, um, from chapter 100, uh, he says this about Eve, who was, quote, an undefiled virgin who conceived the word of the serpent and brought about disobedience and death. I thought that was a very interesting choice of words. Conceived the word of the serpent. It's almost like this kind of, uh, you know, it's not like the incarnation of the word of God. It's like the word of the serpent is in the incarnation of evil. And it's, it really plays into that kind of, the sort of anti-Semitic tropes about, like, uh, this sort of degradation of a race into a diabolic sub-race. Uh, I, I, I don't know. That's it, it's I, I, I you know I'm I'm reading this from the 21st century, but like I, I do see that a little bit. Wow, that's really terrifying. Of course, the relationship between Eve and Mary is one that will get lots of play in the Middle Ages. And I think that's why sure. it's being it's exactly that that's being brought. It's about Mary and about how to think about Mary and, and Mary's relationship to Eve and, you know, uh, recapitulation sort of model. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, but again, the context here is within this real diatribe against Judaism and so, yeah, I take that oof, that rhetoric to heart here. Okay. So, Klaus, let's ask, what are your final takeaways as you think about Justin Martyr as the history of, you know, not only the devil, but also kind of demonization and relationships between Christians and other groups? Well, I think if we want to start with the the guy in the red suit with the horns himself, um, there is this strong association with the Edenic serpent um, that, you know, where would John Milton be without that? Um, and here, here. and uh, this really important idea that it's going to, I think, haunt a lot of our discussions. You know, it'll be like Casper, the friendly ghost in the room while we have our microphones out, um, is the fall before time that, that Satan, as the disobedient angel, uh, falls certainly before Adam and Eve. Um, though, but by, by when Justin's writing, it's, it's still, that's still being hashed out when, when Satan writes, but that's when Justin seems to think this. Um, but it's like, well, okay. So how soon after he was created, did he sin? Did he have a choice? Like, what does it mean that this angel's eyes opened and it was like, oops, I'm falling out of heaven right away. Um, like, what do we, what do we make of that? Like, what does that mean yeah. you know, for, for how God relates to the devil? Obviously, And we yeah. don't get a lot of specificity in Justin around that, but in the thinkers to come, that gets fleshed out more and more, including some of those problems that you talk about. Now, the answers are definitely not always satisfactory, but that question of 
rarely satisfactory, always interesting in how convoluted and um, not twisted they are, I would say, yeah. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Okay, well, what about, we've also talked about this ideologies of evil, the fallen angels as the source of evil for pagans, Adam and Eve and personal responsibility as the important source of evil for Jews especially, and this, of course, anti-Semitic trope that Jews are super bad because they knew better and they keep worshiping idols. So demonizing the religious other anti-Semitism and supersessionism are definitely at the fore for Justin. And we will unfortunately keep seeing that in some of the other thinkers as we go forward. I think what's, what's, you know, it, it seems so familiar to say like, Oh, like demonizing the other. I think what's so strange about this text is that like, the boundaries are still not quite as hermetically sealed as we might think of them in terms of like, oh, well, you're, the, you're this religion or you're that religion, you're a Christian, you're a Jew. Um, it seems like there's still like Ebionite Christians and Christians, you know, so there, there isn't, it isn't quite as locked up. Oh, Klaus, and maybe not all of our listeners know, Ebionite Christians followed mosaic law right they were of jewish origins and they also were following some of these new rituals these new texts these new beliefs contributing to this new religion of christianity and this idea of the parting of the ways as the latest scholarship between judaism and christianity the latest scholarship is telling us that we need to be thinking about these groups together a little bit further into the first few centuries and 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 the same with 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 what you know christian church historians call heresies like the thing you know that these are also it's there aren't these just like discrete groups that are that are at each other's throats all the time like it takes that that's like a whole process of getting to uh in-group out-group dynamics but it's i think you're right it's safe to see justin as a big part of that process (laughs) yeah for sure okay well with that we will get back together next time i believe we're gonna tease you by saying that Irenaeus might be on the agenda. So stay tuned. You'll find out if that indeed is what we talk about (laughs) and we'll see you in two weeks. So make sure you hit subscribe so that you don't miss our next episode since we're doing a different schedule this time. So see you next time. Thanks for listening. This pod is made possible by support from the Satanic Horde, Asmodeus, Mammon, Leviathan, Beelzebub, and listeners like you. Thank you.